2: Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast, Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we wanna make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible, as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in.
3: I'm Sarah Eisen on day 121 of the coronavirus crisis. The infection rate in the United States just hit the one million mark.
4: We have been in collaboration
5: with other people in industry. Three of the world's biggest healthcare CEOs speaking out tonight.
6: We get a good vaccine. We need to ensure broad access to populations around the world.
5: Tonight, where we stand on the possibility of new treatments, vaccines and testing. Plus... Steps need
6: to be taken now.
5: What's really happening inside America's beef factories? And how worried you need to be? It will be a long road back to recovery. And CNBC's exclusive survey of top economists. When will the great American economy be on solid ground again? And angels saluting America. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Sarah Eisen.
3: We start tonight with a first look at tomorrow. U.S. stock futures right now are pointing to a higher open, though it is early. Today on Wall Street, stocks dropped. The Dow snapped a four-day win streak. The Nasdaq was the weakest, falling nearly 1.5%. Big names like Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook leading the way lower. Three healthcare CEOs sounding off on the coronavirus outbreak and what they're doing to stop it. Let's get right to CNBC's pharma reporter, Meg Terrell, with the latest. Meg. Hey
2: Sarah, well the amount of work going on in the pharmaceutical industry to try to stop COVID-19 is unprecedented. And today we heard from Novartis, Pfizer and Merck about where they all stand in the race to develop treatments and vaccines. Novartis is working on a number of approaches to developing drugs, including running a placebo controlled trial of hydroxychloroquine. CEO Dr. Vosnar Simmon telling us today, quote, There are a lot of studies reading out, but the ones that matter are those gold standard studies. Until we see those placebo-controlled trials, we won't really know if those drugs are working. Merck's CEO also joined us on air today, that company working on both treatments and vaccines. CEO Ken Frazier saying the industry's challenge is to develop, quote, a safe vaccine with unprecedented speed and to manufacture and distribute it at an unprecedented scale. And on that front, companies are already moving at a record-breaking pace. Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla telling me today the company will, quote, start manufacturing its vaccine at risk so it will be ready to deploy if and hopefully when it proves to be safe and effective. And there are also geopolitical questions being raised around the race to drugs and vaccines. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and a Pfizer board member, writing in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, quote, the first nation to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 could have an economic advantage as well as a tremendous public health achievement. Novartis's Nara Simmon acknowledged the issues of nationalism.
6: We're trying to take a very global perspective, and so hopefully we can overcome uh, some of the nationalism that has happened in the past during the H1N1 pandemic, where I was uh, involved very heavily. There were moments where there was nationalism to hold vaccine supply. I think this is a moment where if we get a good therapeutic or we get a good vaccine, we need to ensure broad access to populations around the world.
2: Now, Pfizer's Bourla told me the company will manufacture its vaccine in both the U.S. and in Europe to supply those respective markets, and that it's already started that work. If it's successful, Pfizer says it'll have millions of doses of vaccine available by the end of this year and hundreds of millions in 2021 but that would set a world record in time for vaccine development. The fastest in history was for mumps in 1967, four years from start to finish. That vaccine was developed by Dr. Maurice Hilleman at Merck. And we asked Merck's CEO today about that 12 to 18 month timeframe for a vaccine.
4: I wouldn't say it's too optimistic. What I would say is that uh, Merck has a lot of experience, as you said, in getting vaccines across the finish line. The timeline that we're talking about is in fact shorter than any timeline that's ever occurred with a successful vaccine. At the same time, I think everyone recognizes the urgency of this situation, and we have to look at ways beyond sort of the customary ways of doing this, but there is a certain amount of time that's inherent, for example, in doing clinical studies to ensure that a vaccine that you would use in millions, if not billions of people, is truly safe and effective.
2: And of course, these companies aren't alone. There are dozens of vaccine and drug trials ongoing. With some of the next results from Gilead expected
3: this week. Sarah. You mentioned the timeline, Meg, and the fact that we could expect some results as soon as this fall is the thinking that they would vaccinate the healthcare workers first and then the rest of the population. How would it look? Absolutely. If something were uh, far enough
2: along where they were feeling comfortable with the safety and the efficacy, it would definitely be the high risk groups that would receive a vaccine first. So as you said, healthcare workers, people on the front lines, uh, people also talk about older folks, those who are most vulnerable would be the first in line potentially for a vaccine. But that would be extremely fast to have that confidence in a vaccine.
3: Meg Terrell. Meg, thank you. Dr. Anthony Fauci issuing a warning today at the Economic Club of Washington saying a second wave of the virus is a very real possibility.
6: What keeps me up at night is the emergence of a brand new infection, likely jumping species from an animal that's respiratory born highly transmissible, with a high degree of morbidity and mortality. And lo and behold, that's where we are right now. So it's not going to disappear from the planet Which means as we get into next season, in my mind, it's inevitable that we will have a return of the virus, or maybe it never even went away. When it does, how we handle it will determine our fate. If by that time we have put into place all of the countermeasures that you need to address this, we should do reasonably well. If we don't do that successfully, we could be in for a bad fall and a bad winter.
3: Let's bring in Dr. Jeremy Faust. He is an emergency room physician at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital and teaches at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Faust, good evening. Hello. Why, is, why are so many doctors, first of all, including Dr. Fauci, so convinced that it's an inevitability, in his words, that this virus returns in the fall?
7: Viruses are very seasonab- seasonable in terms of summer, winter, fall. has to do with the environment around us. So we know that we all have the experience of, of fall and winter being the season where we have flus. So the fact that not every single human being on the planet has been exposed to this virus means that we expect it will level off to some degree over the summer and then it will have a resurgence in the fall and winter. The question is, how low can we possibly get this summer and fall as a starting point? What level are we beginning from? Are we beginning from an ongoing crisis, which, which very well could be the case, or are we beginning from nothing, which will be much better?
3: Well, the CDC director has also warned that it could coincide with the height of flu season. How do we prepare? How do our hospitals prepare for the fall?
7: One thing we absolutely have to do is to realize that when more patients come to us with critical illness, we need to have the medications ready that we know work. Obviously, right now, there's no proven drug that helps for coronavirus, and we are waiting for one to show us any real benefit. But there are things when patients need to be put on mechanical ventilators, paralytic drugs and sedative medications, and also antibiotics if there's bacterial infection in addition to the viral infections, which we do commonly see. And the one thing we could really do is to make sure that our drug shortages are dealt with now. The president has enormous power. There's been a lot of talk about what the president's role can be with states and other arguments. This is one area where it's very clear. The president can use the Defense Production Act to really amp up that pipeline so that when we do have a resurgence of any kind of illness related to this condition, that we're ready to do everything we can on the front line to help them.
3: There are so many clinical trials going on right now. I hear about a new one every single day. What is the likelihood that come fall, we do have an effective either treatment or mix of treatments to help better manage this pandemic?
7: The thing that's going to get us through this is a vaccine, and as we all know, that's not coming soon enough. So the question is, will any of these drugs actually play out in a real clinical trial with actual control groups and blinding and all the things you need so that you know that the data that you're looking at is not just noise? I think that we're probably going to find a few things that work a little bit, but I don't think that there's going to be a game-changing medication in terms of taking this this, this crisis and just making it go away overnight, we know what that is. That's a vaccine when it, if and when it's proven to be effective. But medications that slow down virus, it takes so long to get the right combination. With HIV, AIDS, it took years and years of medications that we knew worked, but we just didn't know how they worked together and what combination. And then it took another medication class to kind of come in and save the day. And that really changed the tide of the HIV. Uh, issue in the 90s. We don't have that now. And so first, we don't know what works. And second, we don't know what works together. So I'm, I'm not optimistic that we'll find a magic bullet that is on the level of a vaccine, not a magic bullet that will make this crisis feel any different. It might make a small difference.
3: In the meantime, so many states are looking to reopen. Many of them have already done so. Are you comfortable with this?
7: I would be very concerned if I was in a state that was reopening right now. We're all very eager to get back to regular life. I definitely understand that. Right now, we're seeing something that's unprecedented in American history, as far as I can tell, and that is that not just are there a lot of coronavirus deaths, the total number of deaths is up in this country. And that's called... That's a a concept called excess or extra mortality. Every week in my city or your state or in the whole country, compared to the that same week for years and years, for decades, the number of expected deaths is pretty stable, very remarkably stable. The data is very good. And we are now seeing for the first time many, many states saying... There's just more deaths, period, and, even, and we know that they're from coronavirus, but you can't fudge the fact that there are just simply a lot more deaths. And we never see that, even in a bad flu season. We don't see anything on the scale that we're seeing today. So I would want to see that go away. I need to know that we are at least close to normal with respect to our just regular number of deaths that, that come and go, cancer, heart attack, old age. But if we are, New York is double, triple, quadruple, and even more, that, that's a very bad situation.
3: Dr. Jeremy Faust, stay with us if you would. We're going to zero in on one story. As economies start to reopen here in the U.S., some are looking at Sweden, which never really closed. The country has taken a different response to the coronavirus, leaving restaurants and schools open, but banning crowds of over 50 people and encouraging social distancing. Not all scientists agree that this has been the right move. Dr. Nila Brusilas, Brusilas is an associate professor at clinical epidemiology at the karolinska institute the premier medical research institute in sweden thank you so much for joining us doctor do you agree with
8: sweden's strategy i think it's a very risky strategy uh, which is costing many lives already especially if you compare it to the neighboring countries norway denmark finland uh, sweden has way more deaths already and one of the biggest risks is if the current measures don't work, well, even if you implement them now, they won't show any effect in the first few weeks. So it's, uh, it's, it's a big gamble. Yeah. I, I don't think the numbers are reassuring for now.
3: We're yes. looking at the number of deaths on the screen, 2355. You know, Some people say that those deaths per population are comparable to the death rate that we're seeing here in the United States. And it's actually lower than places like Italy, Spain, and even the UK, even though they haven't taken as drastic measures to shut down. How do you respond
8: to that? We are later on the curve. So Italy, of course, started earlier. Uh, Italy has had uh, a lot of cases already in February, March. Here already, it it started only mid March. So, uh, but we are fastly approaching. uh, If you look at the numbers. Uh, of deaths per million, we're actually higher than the United States. And uh, an important fact is also that more than half of the cases are only Stockholm, which is a city of only one million individuals. So Stockholm itself is similar uh, as uh, New York for the moment. Or close How to are them. the hospitals faring? Are, are they able to handle the capacity? Uh, there are reports now emerging that intensive care units all over the country start struggling, so uh, it's not uh, clear which counties are now uh, in problem- problematic situations. Uh, we also know that many people do not arrive on intensive care. There have been uh, guidances uh, for triage already from mid-March, although it has been the night that they were used already in March. Uh, so many people are not receiving uh, the healthcare or intensive care already uh, because of. Uh, but they say that there's still uh, some beds available. Uh, last report I saw there were like 30% of beds available in uh, of the ICU beds available in Sweden. But if we look at the age distribution, we see that older people uh, are less likely to get uh, a bed on intensive care. So no 80 plus. Uh, people uh, and also lo- uh, a lower and lower proportion of people, 70 plus, eight uh, years old. So it is, there is a lot of strain on there the hospitals. Is...
3: No question. And, and we see that here too. There, there is a theory that Sweden may be reaching herd immunity, where enough people are actually infected mm-hmm. with the virus that, that they can sort of make it go away, something that a vaccine does. What is your opinion about this and how are you even able to tell
8: well the numbers that we see is that you would need 40 to 60 or maybe even higher proportions of the country to be infected or vaccinated to reach herd immunity so even if less than one percent dies or uh, like two percent ends up in intensive care. This is thousands of people uh, and we are still far from those numbers as well. So indeed they have been uh, giving contradicting information. First they said uh, that it was herd immunity, then they said it's economy, but now they are quite clear indeed in their uh, directions that it would be a herd immunity that they're striving for because they don't do they don't take any strong measures to really slow down the spread in Sweden. Yeah.
3: Dr. Bristolaire, thank you for joining us tonight. Yes. Please keep us posted. Yes. Thank you. Let's turn back to now Dr. Jeremy Faust for a moment. What do you make of the way Sweden has dealt with this outbreak, stands in such stark contrast to what its neighboring countries and, and most other countries around the world have done?
7: Relying on a herd immunity argument is basically what you do when you've exhausted other options and you're giving up. That is uh, unbelievable to me that that's what they're trying to justify. It kind of also reminds me, you are weighing lives versus economics and everything else. It reminds me of a sort of infamous study in which the Czech Republic wanted to determine whether smoking would save money. And it turned out that smoking saved them money because fewer, the early deaths actually kept, they saved money down the road on you know their equivalent of Medicare beneficiaries and Social Security. And it was a flabbergasting result that was published and that led to outcry. We can't be trying to weigh lives versus money, but that's kind of what's happening, I feel.
3: But how do you make sense of the fact that their death rate per capita, at least, has not grown past levels in Italy and Spain, I mentioned, in other European countries. I know it is much higher than some of the neighboring countries like Denmark and Norway, but certainly it isn't that far off from the rest of the world.
7: We should be watching that very closely, and here's why. When you open up who goes out, the young and the healthy, and they'll become infected, and then a week or two later some of them will become sick, but not enough to overwhelm a hospital. But over time, those healthier individuals will spread it to the nursing home, to the older patients, older individuals who aren't going out, and that's when you get a big, huge spike in deaths. So the number of cases you get certainly correlates the number of deaths you get, but if it goes through an older community, then the death rate skyrockets. Here in Massachusetts, for example, the average age of death from a, from a coronavirus patient is over 80, even though the average case is the, the age of the average person with a case is in the, in the low 50s, I believe. So we have to protect the right people. And it feels okay to go out at first, but I, I really worry that two, three, four weeks down the road, then those healthy people did transmit it to older folks. And sure, your, your number of cases might come down, but the deaths will skyrocket.
3: Dr. Jeremy Faust, thank you for joining us this evening. Good to see you. Thank you. This CNBC specials report, markets and turmoil, is just getting started.
5: Next tonight, America's food supply. One top executive saying this week, the chain is breaking. Next, what's really
9: going on inside these plants? And as soon as government regulations were lifted on distilleries making hand sanitizer, we began the process immediately.
5: A vodka company stepping up to fight the virus. Before the break, images from around the country on day 121 of the coronavirus crisis.
3: night's headlines on the virus. California Governor Gavin Newsom says students might be able to return to classrooms by July. British Airways plans to cut as many as 12,000 jobs, saying it will take several years for passenger demand to recover. And according to the website, the information Uber is considering cutting 20 percent of its employees as demand plummets. Austin-based Tito's Handmade Vodka stepping up to help fight the coronavirus pandemic. The company is producing and distributing tons of free hand sanitizer to several states across the country.
9: As soon as government regulations were lifted on distilleries making hand sanitizer, we began the process immediately to to make, produce, and distribute 24 tons of it. We have the facilities in order to do it. We have the bottling lines. We have the the people on the ground that know exactly what to do in order to get the production of this going. Um, So it felt like a very clear fit for us. Initially what we wanted to do was help serve our immediate community in Austin, Texas. Um. Obviously, this outbreak is across the entire country. We've been working with local emergency services in states such as New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Florida, Louisiana, Illinois, Michigan, um, and California so far. And we have a, probably another ten states um, coming up in the next week or so. Within the first week and a half, we were able to fulfill enough orders to go through that first 24 tons of product that we had. Um, now we are we're bolstering our production facilities and I think we're going to be able to make at least 60 um, 60 tons a week. The biggest thing is getting it to where it needs to go. So, you know, as long as there's a need for it, we'll continue to make it.
3: That was Tito's handmade vodka stepping up. President Trump saying he will sign an executive order to keep meat processing plants open in this country. This comes days after Tyson Foods warned the, quote, food supply chain is breaking. Several beef factories have been forced to shut down due to workers getting sick. Mark Perrone is international president of the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. The union is calling on the White House to strengthen testing and safety measures for its 250,000 meatpacking workers. Good evening, Mark. Thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you, Sarah, for having me.
3: What is your reaction to the president signing this executive order, and do we know anything about what's in there as far as keeping workers safe?
4: Well, there's not anything in the order specifically about keeping workers safe, uh, which is one of the things that concerns us. Um, you know, the White House must clearly enact enforceable safety regulations or standards. Now, they can do that through OSHA or other mechanisms, but they they really really need to do that. Now companies need to mandate PPE that that the workers can use and access the federal stockpile in order to do that if in fact he's going to use the defense production act. That we need daily testing to make sure that we ultimately keep the virus out of the plant. We need to do physical distancing uh, and we need to make sure that we provide sick leave to make sure workers don't go to work because they're not going to have a paycheck and they go to work sick. Uh, that's very important and we need constant monitoring of the plants by federal inspectors to make sure those safety standards are in place. Now, look, if he had done the Defense Production Act, uh, to get us to PPP in the very initial stages, we could have, we could have basically avoided this. Uh, and we are concerned about it. Um, and I'm concerned that even if he, even, even by saying this is going to happen, uh, the workers are still afraid. And, and now their trust has been broken in those plants. Uh, I don't know whether or not they're going to go back to work. Um, because some of them I think are, are, are just not going to work because they're afraid.
3: Why? What has it been like inside those meat processing plants? Give us a picture.
4: Well, well, look, everybody is like uh, elbow to elbow. That's the first thing. Uh, there haven't been, until recently, uh, plastic dividers between the workers. There haven't been tight shields on their helmets uh, and there weren't masks that they were allowed to wear. Uh, the cafeterias are like uh, a school-run cafeteria where everybody sits face to face. They now have to put dividers up in those cafeterias, and we applaud the work that some of our employers have done in order to make things safer. Uh, and that has been in conjunction with conversations between us uh, and the companies. Uh, you know, I I I can't say uh, that all of them had been difficult, while some of them have been but we need uniform safety guidelines that are enforceable to make sure that this happens across across the system Our food supply as it relates to protein in this country is so interrelated and interconnected because of the efficiencies that have been worked into the system when anything slows down or is there it has an impact at the point of sale in the stores that we're starting to feel right now. Is right,
3: Mark, I, I wanted to ask you about that. When, when are grocery shoppers across mm-hmm. this country going to really see the impact of this, either through shortages or price increases? What can we expect?
4: Well, I think that we've already seen some price increases. Uh, in fact, I was reading a trade publication the other day that said that. Uh, margins are up 300, 340% uh, in some of the packers. And I've started to see, at least in my stores, limited supply of chicken. Uh, I have not run into a pork issue as of yet. But I think that we can probably expect within the next probably week or two some shortages. A product. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think it's a food supply shortage as much as it's going to be a, a shortage of a particular product that you may want. Hmm.
3: Mark Peron, thank you for joining us tonight. We hope okay, you get the protection you that much. you need.
4: And you have a you be safe. Okay. Thank you.
3: Be be safe and healthy to you as well. Here's what's coming up on the CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil.
5: Just when will the great American economy be on solid footing again? CNBC has an exclusive survey of top economists, and the answer isn't great. Plus, one giant mall operator starts its path forward. And what's your office going to look like when you go back? insight tonight this cnbc special report markets in turmoil is coming right back i'm fairly optimistic that we're going to get into a more normalized economy albeit slower tonight when the u.s economy will recover our exclusive survey of what's ahead what keeps me up at night is the emergence
6: of a brand new infection
5: plus One doctor in the middle of a massive coronavirus spike in his city. Tonight, the view from his ground zero. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Sarah Eisen.
3: Good evening, CNBC today releasing exclusive data on three key issues for the American economy and your money. How long until we recover? How many people will lose their jobs? And what does the government and the Federal Reserve have to do to soften the blow? Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman has the answers. He's with us tonight live. Steve.
1: Sarah, thanks very much. Yeah, uh, the CNBC Fed survey is showing unequivocally that the uh, respondents, uh, Wall Street uh, analysts, strategists and economists, think it's a very long road back. It will cost a lot of money to get there. And a lot of jobs, unfortunately. You can see the trajectory by looking at the forecast unemployment rates. Unfortunately, it ratchets up. 19% is the projected peak, and that doesn't happen until August of 2020. But then by the end of the year, it stays up in double digits. 11% is the average forecast for the unemployment rate at the end of this year. And only by the end of next year, at 7%, does it come down that number is double the rate before the coronavirus pandemic hit the economy and it's going to take a lot more money you can say the federal reserve and congress have already put in about 5 trillion dollars well guess what another 5 trillion is needed 3.4 more from the federal reserve these folks estimate and another 2 trillion from congress that's on top of the 2.5 that congress has already allotted so how long will it take to come back This is where there's a very wide dispersion. There is a a debate about when we get back the growth that we've lost. And you can see there is some group that's reasonably optimistic that we can be fully restored by the end of this year. That's about 40%. Take the other side where it happens the end of next year. Oh, sorry, the end of uh, 2022. And that's another 40%. So at least another year, maybe even two. To show you the debate that we have, Uh, among the respondents. Here's one optimistic view. Production and consumption have been largely deferred and not lost, says Rob Morgan of U.S. Energy Advisors. This leads me to believe the economy will experience a V-shaped recovery. That would be a very fast and welcome bounce back. But John Riding from uh, Beer for Breen says that the market is too optimistic. He says risk markets are anticipating a faster return to normalized economic conditions than we are likely to see. And Sarah, just one more note, you heard a little clip there of Gary Cohn, uh, the former C, uh, NEC director, saying that he's concerned about a, a renewed contagion. This group puts a 61% probability that by the winter or the fall, we could have another round of this.
3: I was just going to ask, ask how economists were looking at their models and whether they were forecasting anything related to a second wave, whether the economy would shut down and what that would do to those unemployment, and growth figures.
1: You know, I, I, I can't say, I don't, I don't think that's part of the models that economists do. I don't think they're able to model the, you know, epidemiology of this virus here. What I do know is I've had talks with several business people, and what they tell me is that they feel like a second shutdown would be worse for their business than a prolonged first shutdown. They'd rather wait longer than not have to shut down again.
3: Steve Leisman. Steve, thank you. Simon Property Group is America's largest mall operator. The company is planning to reopen 49 malls and outlet centers between May 1st and May 4th. CNBC.com's retail reporter Lauren Thomas broke this story. She joins us live tonight. Lauren, what did you learn about what it's going to look
0: like for these malls to reopen? Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, so Simon is really writing the playbook as we speak for how retail can reopen in the U.S. Uh, Forty-nine malls are set to reopen, like you said, across the U.S. as soon as this Friday. And again, Simon is the biggest mall owner in the country, and a lot of this is uncharted territory. And you know, retailers can't really get their stores open until the mall opens back up. So, in many ways, Simon had to take the first step here. So. Obviously we're in this uncharted territory and there are some precautions that need to be made. And so Simon is taking a number of measures to make sure or try to make sure that customers feel safe at the mall. Uh, It will encourage that people wear masks, um, but it's not mandating that they do so. And Simon will also be handing out CDC approved masks uh, to those visitors that ask for them when they arrive at the mall. Um, it said it will also encourage people via signage to take their temperature before they get to the mall. Um, and again, it will offer uh, temperature checks on site for those that ask for them. Um, but it will just be interesting to see. I mean, are customers ready to get back to the mall? I think. That remains to be seen. Um, And, you know, some states that's that's not even allowed yet. These openings are largely spread across Georgia, Texas and South Carolina. So, again, areas where the economy is, is starting to open back up.
3: Well, will customers be ready to come back is one big question. Lauren, another question is, will the actual stores be open? Simon Property owns the malls, but what about the retailers
0: inside those malls? Exactly. So, actually just got off the phone about an hour ago uh, with the CEO of the National Retail Federation, Matt Shea, and asked him this question, you know, what are you hearing from your members? What are retail CEOs saying? He said he thinks that we'll see a mixed approach. Um, some companies will be ready to open state by state as the government allows them to do so, but some could wait out a bit longer. Maybe they want to, to find a date where The whole country is back open and they could open their stores nationwide. Um, So I anticipate, you know, based on conversations I've had, that it's really going to be a mixed approach. Um, But again, like you said, it's up to retailers at the end of the day now. Should I open? Um, Do I even have my workers in place to open? Again, because many of these retail employees have been furloughed. Lauren Thomas. Lauren, thank
3: you. Thank you. We're talking tonight with one company planning its path forward Norisan Industries is a floor covering company with 400 employees they've been having daily meetings to prepare their return to work Andrew Pekar is president of Norisan Industries and he joins us now Andrew good evening thanks for joining us
10: Thanks for having me Sarah
3: So what is the strategy sessions that you're having entail as far as how it's going to look when you open up?
10: So we have daily strategy sessions um, concerning all our business, but we're also working on um, when we're gonna come back to work and how we're gonna come back. We can't just say that the governor's gonna open up New Jersey on Monday and everyone show up. We have to be very careful about how we uh, introduce people back into the office.
3: So what sort of things are you considering to make your employees, we're seeing 400 of them feel safe, when you do actually decide to reopen?
10: So we've put together a very stringent uh, disinfecting system in place in the offices about all the common areas, but we're also worried about how we're gonna introduce everybody. Uh, We think our first step is going to be people in offices because they can social distance, and then how we're going to split up the rest of the staff with a half and half work one week on, one week off, or a third, a third, and a third. Um, it's it's a fluid process because you just don't know how things are gonna are gonna end up when we're ready to open up again.
3: As I understand it, you did receive PPP funds, the government relief checks, and have kept your workers on board. What's business like? Are you able to sell carpets online, or do people need to come see them in person?
10: So we have done. We have had an e-commerce business um, that has uh, helped us weather the storm somewhat. Um, a lot of our business has been in stores, and of course, stores are not open. Uh, the PPP has helped because we were originally um, uh, did pay cuts, and we were going to go deeper with um, furloughs, and uh, we didn't have to do that because of the PPP. We were paying everyone their salaries, keeping everybody on staff, and uh, that's pretty much the essence of the PPP was to keep everyone uh, employed. For
3: how long? How long does that last?
10: So the PPP will last us through about mid-June. And um, hopefully by then we'll have somewhat of a normalcy where we'll be starting to reopen and getting back to business as usual.
3: We wish you lots of luck. Andrew Paykar, thanks for joining us of Nuri Industries. Here's what's next on the CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil.
5: Next up, an emergency room doctor still seeing a massive spike upwards in cases of the coronavirus. His story from his city's epicenter next. Plus, if you missed it the first time, you won't want to miss it a second time. The Blue Angels saluting America's medical workers. Before the break, images from around the world on day 121 of this global pandemic.
3: Angels roaring from New York City to Philadelphia and Wilmington, Delaware today. They were in formation saluting frontline workers fighting the coronavirus. Chicago is another area that needs a lift as coronavirus case numbers continue to climb. Cook County, which includes Chicago, has the sixth highest amount of cases in the USA. Dr. Ernest Wong is treating some of those patients at North Shore University Health Systems five hospitals in and around Chicago. Dr. Wong, thanks for making the time tonight. What's it like in the ER right now?
11: Thanks for having me. Um, Right now, it's actually, I would say, pretty controlled. Um, We are not seeing the same degree of a spike that uh, New York has had, and we're very fortunate in that way. But we do have a lot of cases, as you already mentioned, And so what that means is our uh, state in our area has done a good job of kind of moderating the rise. So it's not a huge spike, but we have um, controlled the, uh, or been able to control the the number of cases that uh, present mostly because of our shelter in place.
3: I was just going to say, given the fact that your spike came later than places like New York, do you feel like you had time to prepare in terms of equipment, ICU beds, ventilators, so that you don't have shortages?
11: Yes, absolutely. I think having the foresight of seeing not only New York, but Italy, uh, Spain, we had the um, ability to kind of plan and I give all the credit to uh, my hospital administration for our organization for really uh, putting together a really really sound playbook and strategically allowing us to be able to handle the uh, influx of COVID patients in our hospital. And indeed around the state, what we're seeing is that um, we are uh, doing well with respect to ICU capacity and ventilator capacity. There's variation in regions. Uh, Cook County is a little more impacted in other uh, regions in the Southern part of the state, uh, less impacted.
3: Are there any treatments in particular or any methods that you're doing that you find are having better outcomes?
11: Some of the things that we are starting to initiate in our emergency department uh, include uh, the use of a high flow nasal cannula oxygen delivery system. Uh, Our colleagues at the University of Chicago have had good success with that. And we are uh, implementing that um, in our, COVID units. We are uh, doing what's called proning the patients and turning them uh, on their stomachs periodically so that uh, we improve their oxygenation. And uh, we have great hospitalists and intensive care physicians that are uh, taking care of these patients day in and day out. Um, And in the ICU, they're uh, proning patients um, uh, several times a day. And this is helping to get these patients better. And we're actually uh, discharging a fair number of people getting them off the ventilators.
3: I was just going to say, are these methods to be used instead of the ventilator? Because some of the recent statistics in New York show that as many as 88% of people who have been on ventilators actually did not survive in the New York area.
11: That Yes, that is, uh, that's correct. Now, um, proning can be used with ventilated patients and also with non-ventilated patients, we call it self-proning where you can follow your own instruction follow instructions and actually prone yourself so it's a strategy that's being used in um, uh, both ventilated and non-ventilated patients Uh, I would say um, there are a lot of reasons why uh, there was an 88% mortality rate in New York you know a lot of it probably had to do with the the spike and the, the the number of people that just showed up at the hospital overwhelming the hospital systems And if you're able to temper that and not have such a big spike, you won't overwhelm your resources and you'll be able to uh, take care of um, the patients um, better. So you'll have less uh, excess uh, deaths. And so that's really the key, one of the keys. There's many things, but that's Mm -hmm. one of the keys.
3: Dr. Juan, thank you for joining us. We wish you well. Tonight's top headlines next on the CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Breaking news in the media world today as a new battle breaks out over distribution in the movie industry. Julia Borston is on the phone with the details. Julia, what can you tell us? Sarah AMC Theaters raising concerns about Universal Studios success with its direct-to-video on-demand digital release of Troll's World Tour. The theater chain AMC saying in a letter that it shared to studio chief Donna Langley that if Universal simultaneously releases films in theaters and at home, it won't license any Universal films to AMC's 1,000 theaters around the world. Now, this follows a Wall Street Journal article quoting NBC Universal CEO Jeff Schell, saying that the film demonstrated the viability of paid video on demand and that when theaters open, they expect to release movies on both formats, both in theaters, and on demand, though he did not explicitly say he is aimed to release them both simultaneously. No word back from Universal. We have out to them for comment. Julia Borston, thanks for bringing us the latest. And from all of us here at CNBC, I'm Sarah Eisen. Thank you for watching. Shark Tank is up next.
1: The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX.